All right, Athens, tell us your story. A podcast featuring the people of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. The stories are as unique as the people themselves, but they all reveal the character, the culture, and the distinct voices of a classic Southern community. My name is Frank Gross, and uh, we've been in Athens since 1986. I retired from the military in 1988 after 22 years. I was born in the southwestern part of Virginia and grew up there. Dad was a coal miner, and uh, I've been interested in flying airplanes since I was a little kid. My my brother used to buy the little balls of gliders, and we'd fly them together. And and, uh, we lived about a little over a mile from the airport, little grass strip, so we'd watch the airplanes fly. At that time, they were Piper Cubs and such uh, small planes, talking about uh, late 40s, early 50s, because that's when a lot of the pilots from World War II were down. So if they were flying, they were doing loops and spins and all sorts of things, and I watched that. And it was just fascinating. Uh, I learned to fly when I was 17. Didn't have my driver's license yet, but I had my student pilot's license. And uh, spent some time in Cincinnati, Ohio, before I was about to get drafted and found out the Army Aviation Program was open to high school graduates. Now, this was 1966. Of course, that time was when Vietnam was building up in 65, 66 time frame. And uh, didn't really want to get drafted, so I saw this ad in a flying magazine. It said, who said high school graduates can't fly? And uh, so I went down to see the recruiter, signed up. Yeah, I joined the Army, went through basic training, and then from basic went straight to flight school. I started in uh, late August of 66 and graduated in June of 67. I got orders to Vietnam, but I got uh, orders for Chinook transition en route to Vietnam. And of course that was at Fort Rucker where I finished flight school. And that was about four weeks. So I, I guess my class was probably the first regular class of flight school graduates to get Chinook transition because the Chinook was still a new aircraft at that time. And when a new glamorous aircraft comes into the Army inventory, the more experienced folks, more senior people fly. I was 21 years old when I got to Vietnam. Things were moving fast those days. You just go and do what the Army says do. And when I got to Vietnam, I was a warrant officer W-1, and everybody else in the unit was captains and majors and uh, warrant officer two and three. And, uh, you know, I felt like a, <laughs> a kid in, in kindergarten, I guess. And I was flying with some really good folks. I mean, some really impressive pilots, professionals. You know, old guys, probably 25, 30 years old. <laughs> and uh, I tried to watch them and see how they flew and pick up little tips. And the Chinook is a tandem rotor helicopter. It was came into the Army uh, inventory in the early 60s and was in general use in Vietnam probably as early as 64, 65 time frame. 
We did all sorts of cargo, internal and external, uh, on the cargo hook, sling loading, we called it. Primarily with that, we'd do artillery moves, put the gun in a, a bag of ammo underneath the gun, so we had a piggyback load and carry that. We didn't have to sit down. We just dropped the loads, you know, set the loads down, release the cargo hook and take off. Didn't have to land, per se. We carried water trailers, uh, anything that the troops needed in the field, we would carry them out. We carried a, a 20-foot recovery sling on board the aircraft. And if a Huey had gotten shot down, we could go in and pick them up and carry them. We, we use the term max gross for max gross weight of the aircraft. And uh, when I arrived in Vietnam, got to my unit, the first day I was there, uh, when I was introduced to folks uh, at lunchtime, uh, ever who was taking me around, said, hey guys, this is our new pilot, Frank Gross. And somebody said, Max. <laughs> so. Max was my nickname over there, and, and uh, still some of my Vietnam buddies call me Max. When I was in Vietnam there, the, about the first six months, we spent every other week at Canto. We had a little hooch down there, little quarters, buildings where we lived. And in one corner of it, we had a little kitchen. And on Monday mornings, we wouldn't fly. We'd be the standby crew that day. I'd go over to uh, the ration breakdown place, and I'd scrounge food, so we'd have a good dinner on for all the guys when they got back on Monday evenings. Uh, during the Tet Offensive, uh, our ramp was attacked, and uh, we got a mission to go get some troops to bring up to Canto. Uh, a fellow by Ed Zaber and uh, Carl Vertries, who recently passed, were the pilots. The firefight was about 100 yards in front of them, and uh, there's a round came through the center of the windshield, through Ed's windshield. He had taken a little piece of plexiglass right here and had a little blood on his face. But uh, he didn't know how bad he was wounded, but it really shook him up. I went down and, and took his place. But the next morning, Ed had gone down to get his helmet and stuff out of the aircraft because he had just left it there when he ran out. And he was standing there talking to me and uh, had his helmet in his hand. And I said, Ed, what's wrong with your helmet? And he picked it up and he looked at it and he was speechless for a little, several seconds. He's, huh, huh. And I picked up a pencil off the desk and handed it to him. He stuck it through two holes in his helmet. And the last time I saw Ed in Vietnam, that pencil was still there. I was in the 147th Assault Support Helicopter Company, and our nickname was the Hill Climbers, and we used that as our call sign. And someone came up with a slogan, no hill for a climber. And that's, that's what we used, and we'd use that a lot when someone would say thank you or whatever, we'd say no hill for a climber. And, and truly, we, we felt like we could do about anything we were asked to and we would really try hard to do it. We got a mission to go to a little place called Anyuton, which was a, an outpost of the 9th Division, 9th Infantry Division 
we thought it was a special forces camp, really. In mid-March, the 18th, in fact, of 1968, I was flying with a really good friend uh, who has recently passed, was Sam Taylor. And this particular day, we had a mission to support the 9th Division down in the middle part of the Delta. Uh, at that time, I had been flying, I think, about 14 days straight, so I, I was tired. And we'd only had a can of sea rations for, for lunch that day. So, well, after dark, I said, well, you'll have to fly one sortie. You got a water trailer and about 500 pounds of ammo, piggyback sling load that needs to go. So at that time of the year, visibilities were bad, uh, smoke and fog, haze. So we took off, and as soon as we cleared Bung Tao, we couldn't see anything. It was hazy and it was dark. But the only lights we could see was tracer rounds coming up at us, the orange tracers. The area where we was flying through had artillery going up to 5,000 feet. So I climbed to six. And when I got to where I was going to pick up the load, a place called Tan True, they gave me a little slice of clear airspace that I could kind of spiral down to pick up the load. And then I had to go back up to 6,000 feet to go about five miles to Anuton. Well, the closer I got to Anuton, the more intense the, the ground fire was. Most intense ground fire I'd seen the whole time I was in Vietnam. So I advised our control and requested gunship support. So they dispatched a couple of Huey gunships to escort us into Anuton. And flying around, this, the sling load was swinging and, of course, making inputs into your head. So you had to really ignore the aircraft motion and concentrate on the instruments. Meantime, the gunships had gotten there. And uh, I told them what direction I wanted to land. I, I would normally, when I made an approach over there from 3,500 feet, I could do a nice 180-degree turn and complete the final approach. We, we did that many times a day. In the hunger and fatigue that I was experiencing at the time, I started to make that kind of approach, but from 6,000 feet. So partway through my, the turn, I realized I'm way too high and I can't do this. So I did, I guess, an unauthorized maneuver or a, a non-standard maneuver. I kicked the aircraft out of trim. I put in right pedal and left stick and kind of slipped the aircraft and slowed it down. And I could really get down fast, lose altitude fast. So once I got around the turn and lined up on final, a flare went off right just short of the pad where I was gonna land. And it just totally blinded me. And I tried to squint like when someone brightens the lights when you're driving. And being distracted by that light, the nose kept going further down. And a buddy there, Sam Taylor, he said, pull a nose up, Max. And I looked at the instruments and what I saw was death. I knew I was about to die. We were at 300 feet altitude. We were at 100 knots 
115 miles an hour. And we were nose down 20 degrees. And I had about 40 feet of sling load underneath me. And there was a big old dead tree just beyond the pad a little ways. So I knew I was gonna die. Time slowed down really slow. And I had time to think about things. It was like turning to the last page of a good book and saying, oh, so this is how it ends. I knew I was gonna die. I had a vision of my wife holding my baby, looking in a casket. I didn't look in the casket, I knew it was me there. And I remember thinking, how is she going to get along without me? How are they going to get along without me? And it seems to be a common experience for someone who's been through emergency situation that it's a different time reference or something. I can't say exactly, but it was just like suddenly things slowed down except for my thinking and I, I still could think. And I felt Sam get on the controls felt him get on the controls, helping me. And somehow we flashed over the area. We didn't hit anything. And suddenly it's totally dark. It's like pulling a black velvet bag over your head. And vertigo set in. It felt like I was doing slow rolls. Like if I were in a, a clothes dryer turning about that speed. And I knew I was going to have to lose the load. And the load release button is under the right little finger on the cyclic stick. And I just squeezed the whole cyclic stick to get rid of that load. Normally there's about a one or two second delay while the hook opens. But this time it was instant. It just, I felt the load break away. And I made a remark, sure glad that was a fast hook. The flight engineer lays on the floor, looks down through a little square hole, about three foot by three foot, watching the load. He said, sir, you didn't release that load. A tracer hit sling right below the hook. It got shot away. After we dropped the load and climbed back to altitude, I was kind of in a daze for a few minutes. I really didn't know what direction I was flying. And one of the crew announces a searchlight looking for us. And about that time, it illuminated the cockpit. And that scared me. So I did some maneuvering and got away from that. And that kind of brought me back to reality, I guess. I realized that we had been flying a long time. So I decided to go into a place called Tan An to refuel. And I'm circling around trying to see a runway. And in the meantime, I had my flight engineer tuning radios for us. Sam was talking on other radios. We were all busy, really busy. And uh, the crew chief yelled, look out. And he pointed out, and I looked up. There was a top of a microwave tower approaching us. I was turning right into it. And I was able to miss it only by a few feet. Three or four seconds I've been dead. About that time I got contact with the tower and he said they had the lights off because they were under attack. 
I said, can you get me some lights out there? I'll help you fight Charlie when I get on the ground. And he had someone get in a Jeep and drive up to the east end of the runway. And I landed at the Jeep lights and I fully expected to get off the aircraft, grab the M14 and swap bullets with Charlie. But we didn't have to. I didn't see any firefight going on there. But I turned the tail of the aircraft and had one guy get off the aircraft and refuel one tank. And when he got back on, I pulled pitch and we started climbing as fast as we could. And again, artillery up to 5,000 feet, all quadrants. I'm here I am right in the middle of it. And I was climbing a couple thousand feet a minute. And about that time there was a, a jolt. Uh, I could feel it in the aircraft. I, I heard it even over the loud noise of the Chinook. I heard the noise. And I thought someone had dropped a toolbox or a box of ammo or something in the back. And I said, what was that? They didn't know. We didn't know. We got back to 6,000 feet, headed toward Vung Tau. And I, I can't explain what happened to me, but I was unable to hold airspeed or altitude. I had been flying ever since we left Vung Tau. Very, very tense situations. And I said, Sam, take this thing and get us home if you can, because I can't. And Sam took the aircraft. We landed at Vung Tau a little while later. And uh, one of my friends who was a night maintenance officer there had been in operation listening to all this go on in the radio. And uh, he met us with a couple of cold Budweiser's. <laughs> I think we chugged both of them. <laughs> but anyway, that night we had narrowly escaped death by feet or inches or seconds three times. The next morning, when I went back out to fly, the flight engineer on Hill Climber 074 said, hey, sir, come, let me show you something. And right, right in front of the right forward landing gear was a dent, a scraping dent, just about the radius of a 105 artillery shell. So I'm 99.9% convinced that we got kissed by an artillery shell. Had it been six inches higher, it'll probably cut the aircraft in two, even if it didn't explode. So that was a very traumatic experience for us and one we have never forgotten. And I thank Sam to the very end for saving our lives. That was 55 years ago. Was I afraid at that point in time? No, I don't remember being afraid, strangely enough. But yet we almost died and I knew it. Even telling it nowadays, I, I pulse gets. One of the other very uh, trying, difficult missions, this was during the Tet Offensive in 1968. We were delivering loads to a, another 9th Division right alongside the eastern side of a little canal. And as the first aircraft made his approach in there, uh, he took a hit and uh, lost an engine, and he had to go back to Canto. In the meantime, I had requested gunships, and the gunships got there, and the gunships advised me not to go in. And the aviation controller said, Hill Climber, I'm gonna leave it up to you. I said, we've already had one aircraft shot up today and out of action. We don't need two. 
So it's purely my call. And the gunships are still reconning. Recommended I not come in. The guy on the ground couldn't hear either one of those guys, but he was saying, we really need the ammo. And I knew that he had not had resupply in 12 days. So I'm up there, I got time to think. It's my option. You know, I, I said earlier, if we got a mission, we, we do it. But this was my option. And I knew that there was a clear possibility that in a few minutes I could be laying under a burning aircraft down there. And I didn't want to go in. But I thought, you're not any more special than the people who fought at Valley Forge and other difficult situations. So as aircraft commander, I made a decision to go ahead and try it. But I had to figure out how do I get down there really quickly, get this load delivered and get back to safety of altitude without exposing my crew. So I, I made one of these 180 degree turns again, slipping off some altitude quickly and came right down the canal. We weren't, we're told not to fly along the canal, but I knew Charlie was over on the other side of the canal. And I told the flight engineer, I'm not gonna come to a stop. And I told him, I said, I'm gonna elevate the nose to get the load to swing forward as I decelerate. I said, as soon as that load is almost to the ground, you release it. And as I made my approach down the canal fast, I did a quick left turn and then exaggerated the nose up attitude to swing the load forward. So it worked out exactly as planned. He said, load's released. And I just pulled the pitch up a little bit, 3,000 feet a minute rate of climb. And on the way up, the guy on the ground said, thanks, hill climber. I really needed that. So that was our thanks. And, and, and that's what we flew for over there. You know, because we, we knew he could stay alive another day. As I was flying around up there, you know, I was thinking, and I could go back and say no, and be fully justified in doing that. But if that guy got overrun that night and died, it'd be on me. And, and I knew I, I, would, I would have let myself down. I would have turned tail when the going got rough. We started having reunions in 2000, and when folks of like common experiences get together, you tell stories. Hey, remember when? So as we concluded a 2018 Hill Climber reunion, one of the guys, Ron Martin, said, you know, Max, we ought to uh, write these stories down, get as many people to write their war stories down. and." Yeah, that's probably a good idea because we are a passing generation these days. So it became a book. It's called No Hill for a Climber. That was our slogan of our unit in Vietnam. It's hard to get people to write these days. But what I found was writing about your experiences helps you remember. You remember details you would never, ever recall otherwise. And uh, for those folks that's had a bad experience like uh, Lynn Swenson. He was treated very shamefully upon his return from Vietnam and uh, he, he carried a load of guilt for about 50 years 
he didn't even tell people that he'd ever been to Vietnam. He left Vietnam uh, mid-December of 67. And uh, in those days, you had to travel in uniform until you got to your home. He lived in upstate New York. And uh, when he got to California, he was called baby killer. He was spit at at the airport going through there. When he got to New York, he's in his short sleeve khakis summer uniform for Vietnam, but it's cold in New York in mid-December. He was trying to catch a cab. Uh, he couldn't catch a cab. Folks would flip him the bird and go on. Finally, a, a Korean War vet stopped and picked him up. By the time he got home, he was so bitter and feeling guilty. He burned his uniform, his discharge papers, his medals, everything that had to do with Army he burned, and he didn't look back until 2018 when he came to the reunion. We didn't know any of this. And after three or four days, he opened up and told us. And he wrote about that in the book and the story called Going and Coming. And he didn't want to include that, that part. And it took a lot of arm twisting and begging for him to do that. I kept saying, Lynn, that is the story right there and associating with us and encouraging him to write about his experience. It's been an inner healing for him. I asked him how it had changed his life and he said, total catharsis. A lot of folks are going back these days for a vacation to look around. I've never had the desire to go back. If I went back, I'd want to do it from a helicopter. I don't want to be on the ground because I didn't see much of the ground. I mean. You know, I wasn't on the ground much. And I, I didn't mind talking about Vietnam. I mean, yeah, there was bad times and times I didn't particularly enjoy, but overall it was great flying. And if you're a pilot, you just like to fly. And that was good, good flying. But I guess the thing that really gets me now, and I, I know we served honorably. I know we got a lot of bad press and everything misdirected toward the troops. It was the policy in Washington that caused us to lose that war. We almost had it won in, in 68. Tet was the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese last push. If Washington had not have blinked, the war would have ended in 68. That's documented. But, you know, the anti-war thing just caused them to take one more last gasp. And we quit, we scaled back and that encouraged them even more to keep going. But I had actually written those stories before we came up with the idea of the book. And uh, I usually wrote late at night after everyone went to bed. And as you write detail, I could remember things that I would think about. Detail that I would normally not ever remember unless I got immersed trying to go back into that mental situation. And it's amazing how much detail I could remember and still can after all those years. But, you know, as age erodes our memory, it, it, it's important to write it down because sometime, someplace, one of my grandchildren or great-grandchildren will want to know what Papa did in the Army. You've been listening to All Right Athens, produced by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. 
If you or anyone you know would like to be featured on our podcast, please visit our website at alcpl.org for ways to submit your story. All Right Athens is part of our Library Voices series and available on your favorite podcast platform.